Nomophobia. Nomophobia is a real thing. It is the fear of not having your cell phone with you. This is the fear of not only not having your phone with you, but it is a fear of low battery power or being in a location that drops your cell phone signal. This is a real thing that can be found in medical journals. This is a real thing that you can research on CDC, which has uh, symptoms associated with it. Some of the symptoms of nomophobia include phantom ringing, where you don't have your phone with you, but you begin to check your pockets, convinced that your phone is vibrating or that it's ringing, or you hear somebody else's phone and you go into a panic because you're sure that it's yours. Other symptoms of nomophobia have been reported to include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, accelerated heartbeat, panic attacks. Having nomophobia has literally landed people in the hospital with anxiety. They don't know what to do without the tether to their mobile phone. I want to read to you some statistics that were published in May 2017 in a a journal. Some statistics about cell phone usage that may surprise you. This that I'm about to read you is only reflective of adults ages 18 to 40. That doesn't include the large population of mobile phone users from age 8 to 18 which is increasingly growing every single year, or anybody who has a cell phone age 41 and over. This is just the demographic of age 18 to age 40. Here are some of the statistics. Check this out. Did you know that the average adult, age 18 to 40, will check their mobile phone an average of 110 times every single day? That's an average. So you're going to have the low side but you're also going to have the high side of that average. Did you know that 12% of adult users use their cell phone while in the shower? I found out that 44% of adults check their mobile phone for job-related emails while they're on vacation. 44% of people will use their phones to check their job-related emails while they're with their family. 75% of users, and listen to this descriptor, 75% of users admitted that they text while driving. 75% of people age 18 to 40 admitted that they text while driving. This one, I literally had to do the research more than once to make sure that I was not hearing or reading this wrong. This hopefully will surprise you as much as it did me. Here are the statistics about usage, cell phone usage. Listen to this. The average user age 18 to 40 will spend two hours and 51 minutes every day on their phone. That, that's just minutes shy of a 20-hour work week. 20 hours a week, which is a part-time job. That's 80 hours every single month, which when you break that down to a working day, 10 days out of a 30-day month at an average of eight hours a day, or in other words, one-third of your month is spent on a mobile phone. 110 times a day on average. People will check their mobile phone without even realizing it. I've been guilty of this. I I, I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I reach for my phone to see what alerts I missed at night. I'm guilty at times of having my phone and I'm just randomly checking nothing while I'm in the middle of a conversation or or those. I've had to learn to shut my phone off so that I could remove the distraction of the mobile device. Listen, for generations and generations, literally centuries, mankind has looked for ways to improve communication. Think about the importance of communication. And communication being the desire to hear and to be heard. And it's all built around a relationship. Different types of relationships. There can be working relationships. There can be marriage relationships. There can be friendship relationships. There can be, uh, through through social media, relationships with people you don't, don't know. 
But for generations, for centuries, literally, people have worked tirelessly to improve communication. Think about it. Starting with the Stone Age, we have countless evidences of people etching communication into the side of rocks or into tablets. One of the earliest forms of communication was by way of smoke signal, lighting a fire and using a rug or a carpet to uh, bring smoke up a certain number of times in a, in a specific way. From there, there was a carrier pigeon. I doubt that many of you are old enough to have used a carrier pigeon, but a carrier pigeon is where you would write on a piece of paper, whatever note it was, and tie it off to the, to the pigeon's ankle and send it on its way and wait for the reply. There was uh, t- the, 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 the mail that would go by horseback or through carriage. Then there was the telegraph. From the telegraph, there was the telephone that was operated by a switchboard where you would ring in to the operator and tell the operator who you were trying to connect with and they would take their cables and connect the phones. And from there, there was landlines. From landlines, there was dial-up internet. How many of you remember dial-up internet? (laughs) You've got mail. From dial-up internet, we were introduced to email. And from email, we were introduced to mobile phones, and from mobile phones, we were introduced to text messages, and from text messages, we were introduced to social media, and social media has taken on many forms, from Facebook to Instagram to Snapchat, where now communication and the advancement of technology has changed the way we communicate, and it's changed the amount of time that we spend communicating, but it's also altered how we communicate with those in living person. It's amazing to me that when I was a child, we didn't have any of these. We had computer screens that were green apples, and if you were really good, you got to play Oregon Trail on the computer during library time. But we were forced to communicate verbally and with body language and with writing. My kids ask me all the time what cursive is. They look at my handwriting like it's hieroglyphics. They don't know what to do with that because everything is on the computer in front of them. And little idiosyncrasies, and I'm not meaning to, to, to knock anyone, but little things, I, I get after my kids all the time, one child in particular who uses like as an adjective, noun, pronoun, adverb, and conjunction. Like, Dad, do you like, like I was talking to like some, I just I sit there and I talk to my child. It's because of a lack of communication. We've not done ourselves any favors. But when you consider, when you consider the amount of energy and effort that goes into communicating, when you read and you hear these statistics about how we use cell phones to communicate and the amount of energy, time, effort, and resources that it takes, I want to ask the question as a natural segue, this question, and that is this. What would happen if you spent just a fraction of time learning to communicate with God the way that we do with our mobile phone? What would happen if we viewed our relationship with God like we do our mobile phone? Checking it 110 times a day. Talking to God in the shower. In, in circumstances, being worried, I need to be able to communicate with God. Being found guilty of communicating with God an average of an eight-hour workday, 80 hours a week or a month. What would happen if we changed our perspective in communicating with God? How fundamentally would it change our relationship with God and our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. We are in week two of our series that we started last week entitled Stronger. And Stronger is a 12-week series intended to investigate 12 unique individual spiritual disciplines geared toward a greater understanding and and, and a more intentional practice of our faith. The theme, the common theme for our church in 2018 that we believe God gave us is grow. We want to grow in our knowledge of God. We want to grow in our understanding of God and our responsibilities as Christians. We want to grow in our relationship with God. We want to grow in our relationship with others. We want to grow in our understanding and application of the word of God. And so we thought this is an important and an incredible way to start the year off. Last week we looked at the first spiritual discipline, which all others are predicated on, and that was the study of God's word. And hopefully many, if not most of you, took up the challenge, the 30-day challenge that we laid down, the study through the book of James, James, all five chapters. And the idea was that in a 
day, month that you would read the book of James each day, setting aside about 15 minutes. And by the time you were finished and completed with this study, observation, application, and prayer, you would have gone through the book of James six times in, in total. And I promise that it'll change the way you view God, but the whole idea is all about studying God's word so that you can grow in your knowledge, so that you can grow in your understanding of God. And today, we're going to talk about prayer as a spiritual discipline so that we can grow in our communication and in our relationship with God. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, one of our ushers is available and coming around. All you would need to do is raise your hand and one of our ushers is happy to give you a Bible. This Bible is yours to have and to keep. I invite you to bring it with you each and every week. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. If you open your Bible just a little more than halfway and turn to your right, you will run into a collection of names, also known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the, the written stories, the records of Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and the promise of his second coming, as well as our responsibilities as followers of Jesus. We're going to read today the tail end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A few weeks ago when we were talking about prayer, what prayer is, what prayer isn't, how we practice the art of prayer, when we read how Jesus' disciples in Luke 11 said, Jesus, John taught his disciples to pray. Would you, would you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? That what the disciples were looking for was an act of religion. They were looking for a recipe and they were looking for ingredients to somehow pray an effective prayer or a right prayer. And Jesus took their request and he honored it, but he flipped it upside down and he, he fundamentally changed the way they thought about prayer when he said, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We talked about what that prayer represented, that it wasn't just a list of, of do's and don'ts or, or requests, but that it was a, a conversation with God and aligning our desires with the will of God. That our purpose needs to be God's will, not our best laid plans. Jesus, in Matthew 6, teaches this prayer, but in Matthew 7, he's going to elaborate on this prayer, and he's going to talk about the cause and effect, or what happens when you pray, and how you should pray this way. And what we're going to do is, we're going to read this, we're going to read it through in the narrative, but then we're going to stop, and we're going to go back, and I'm going to cover some ground with us. I want to do this because so often, people will take and pull scripture out of the Bible, and they will read it at face value without understanding the culture and context behind it. And they will build entire ways of thinking and believing around what they pull out completely out of context. There are complete religions that have taken scripture out of context and built their theology. In other words, the practice of what they believe or their doctrine, the statements at which describe why they believe what they believe. And they have built them on a faulty foundation because they took it out of context and didn't understand. So I want to read this together. And we're going to kind of explain together why this is so important. If you want to follow along, read with me Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents... If your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? When you pull this out of context and just read that prayer, there is the risk that we run, three in fact, that we need to pay attention to. The first is that we treat God like a genie in a bottle. And we, we pick this up and we begin to rub it, expecting that God is going to pop out as a proverbial genie and answer our prayers. After all, doesn't the Bible say, ask and you will receive? Seek and you will find? 
Knock and the door will be open to you. And so it says that anything you ask will be given. It will be granted to you. And we look at God as though he's a genie in a bottle if we're not careful. Uh, the second risk that we run is religion over a relationship. We see that Jesus says here, keep asking, and we look at that, and we make it something that it really isn't intended to be. We see keep asking as a form of repetition that we'll just continue to say the same thing over and over and over again, beating God into submission, making him tap, uh, saying, I, I quit. Okay, you win. The problem with that is that that's not at all what this is saying. In fact, Jesus teaches against babbling, against repetitious prayers without meaning and significance. So the third risk that we run when we read this, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you, is that we somehow believe that we have to do enough in order for God to be enough. That the more we pray, God will respond all the more to us because of what we've done in prayer. Now there's some truth to that and we'll elaborate and expound upon that here in a moment, but I want us to understand up front that it's not about anything that we do that we receive the grace of God. James is clear in this. We're saved by faith, not by works, but that our, our faith is dead without works. And so there's this paradigm then that we need to identify with and understand as we go through this. When you look at this out of context, it seems like God somehow owes us something. We become superstitious in our approach to prayer. And we make prayer very myopic. We make prayer very self-centered. We make prayer about us, our desires, our wishes, our dreams, our goals, our expectations. And we think that if we pray loud enough, long enough, hard enough, repetitively enough, lock, knock loud enough, that God is going to bend his will, that he'll bend his ear and bend his will to our ways. But when you introduce context and culture into this passage, it fundamentally changes everything about the way that we read it. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing an eclectic group of individuals. There's not one nation or one gender or one socioeconomic group. This is about as diverse of a group as you can imagine as he goes up and ascends on the side of this mountain and he sits with his disciples who are gathered at his feet Large crowds from multiple regions begin to gather. Multiple regions represents multiple cultures. There are men and women both represented here. There are the haves and the have-nots represented when Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount. There are the religious elite and there are the spiritually absent that are represented here. This is about the most eclectic group of individuals that one could imagine in their mind that Jesus is addressing. And yet somehow, through the power of the Holy Spirit and in God's infinite wisdom, he takes a broad brush strokes and he, and he sweeps over all of them and addresses each one of them where they're at and challenges them to go where God's calling them to go. In chapters 5, 6, and the first part of chapter 7, if you do a little research and study, you'll understand that what Jesus is addressing at the onset of the Sermon on the Mount is he is addressing issues of attitude, he is addressing issues of actions, and he is addressing clearly the characteristics of every follower of Jesus Christ. He's taking all the guesswork out, starting with the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, when he goes on to give eight, and some might argue, nine different characteristics or attitudes that we should have as followers of Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Uh, blessed are you when people curse you and say all kinds of ill against you because of me. He goes on and gives a list of attitudes that we should take on as followers of Jesus. And then from Matthew 5, he goes on to talk about our actions, that we should be like salt and light, that we have a purpose as Christians, and that when we fulfill our purpose, it is good for the whole, but when we don't, it becomes useless. And then he talks about relationships. Jesus addresses the marriage relationship. He addresses relationships between father and son, mother and daughter. He, releases, he, he addresses cultural relationships. Jesus addresses how we think about other people, how we think about other people in terms of our judging and, and our statements against them or toward them or about them. He addresses our perspective on finances. He addresses our perspectives and our opinions on money and, and not only that, but on the law, the Torah, the Mosaic law. 
Jesus lays out and he qualifies for everyone the characteristics, the attitudes, the attributes, and the actions of every person who would bow their heart and bend their knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you were to become a follower of Jesus, and not just a follower, because this is not for the faint of heart, this is for the fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we see later on when Jesus is encountering people and they say, well, Jesus, we want to follow you. And he says, okay, then abandon everything you've got and follow me. And they say, well, let me go back and, and bury my father. And Jesus says, you let the dead bury themselves. Well, let me go back and settle my accounts. And Jesus says, well, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? If you want to follow me, take up your cross daily, die to yourself, and surrender your will to me. Surrender your best laid plans to me. Surrender your ideas to me. Surrender everything that you thought you knew to me and follow me. When you look at this, when you look at this at face value and you read all these characteristics, if you were to take pen and paper in hand and you were to write out the characteristics, the qualities, the attributes, the attitudes, and the actions of every follower of Jesus Christ, and then understand that Jesus is saying that these are necessary. These are not just a good idea for the Christian to, to, to grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, but these are necessary as followers of Jesus Christ. One could become hopeless. One could feel incredibly helpless because, let's face it, on our own, on our own, these are, these are unreachable. These are unattainable things. And Jesus, that's not lost on him. That's why at the end, the very tail end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he finishes with a prayer that instructs us and encourages us and teaches us to rely fully on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the working of Jesus Christ as we focus on the will of God. Now, I've given you a lot to think about as we, as we jump in. Let me encourage you to pull out the bulletin that you received as you came in and use this as a, as a platform to take down notes. And I think it would be a really good idea over these 12 weeks for you to keep a running tab of what you're learning. Let this become a catalog of spiritual disciplines so that you can reflect on each one as you're going to see they, they build on each other. I already said it, but I want to state it again that last week we started with study on purpose because all of these other spiritual disciplines are predicated on the Word of God, on studying and understanding and applying the Word of God to our lives. Catalog these. Follow along. And what I want to do, church, is I'm going to pray. And as I finish my prayer, we're going to, we're going to read this together in a way that you might be a little more accustomed to with my teaching. We're going to stop just about every word along the way. And we're going to investigate this and see what, what God has for you and, and for me. And then I'm going to finish up the tail end with pointing out three characteristics of what prayer is intended to be. And how we can apply it to our lives so that we can grow stronger in our faith through prayer. And I'm going to finish with two quotations that I think will help us adopt and identify this yearning for prayer that we have. So Father, be it so. I pray that your word would wash over us now. I pray that I would become less so that you would become more. I pray that it would be your voice that is heard through the public speaking uh, through the public reciting of your words. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our, our minds and draw our hearts to you, quicken our thoughts to you. Father, I pray that you would give us what insight we need today for learning, what insight we need today for living, and that your name would be glorified in this. God, redeem our time. As your name is lifted up, I invite you to draw all people unto yourself and meet us where we're at, change the composition of our hearts, and take us where you want us to go. And may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you follow along with me again now as we read chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 with some context and culture? Jesus, as he begins to teach on prayer once again, he says, keep on. Keep on asking. People will take this and they'll misappropriate it. They'll see keep on and they'll they'll almost read it as a, as a, as a term of, or a form of badgering, like a child to a parent. And in fact, Jesus is going to use two examples about parents, and he's going to use that to draw a parallel, a distinctive between earthly parents and our heavenly father. But when we read this, keep on, we might be tempted to read this as if we badger God, if we just keep going and going and going and going and going, that we'll somehow wear God down like our kids have worn us down. 
My youngest daughter, Brianne, has developed a perpetual problem of trying to wear her mother and I down in only one area, and that's taco milk. That means chocolate milk, but she says taco milk. Taco milk sounds interesting to me. I know what a walking taco is, bag of Doritos, jump, drop everything in there, throw some sour cream and salsa on top and eat it out of the bag. Taco milk could be a little interesting. But she will wear us down. She will go to her mom and she'll ask for taco milk and, and her mom will say, no, Brianne, you need to eat your dinner or you need to do this first or you need to drink water or uh, something else because you already had a, a glass of chocolate milk today. And then inevitably she'll come to me when her mother's not in the room and she'll ask me for taco milk. And the first few times I would just honor her because she's beautiful and funny and sweet and I wanted to, I wanted to reward my daughter for being beautiful and funny and sweet. But I learned over time as her mother would say, Andrew, I just told her no to ask her. And so I'll now say, hey, Brianne, what did mom say? And she'll say, mom says, no, that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> we, 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 we sometimes, if we're not careful, we can view the, this wording, this keep on, as a, as a perpetual uh, a, a nagging or a begging or, or, or wearing God down. That's not at all what this means. In the original language, when you study it and look a little deeper, keep on, it insinuates a continued conversation. It, can, it insinuates that this, there's a conversation that started, but it continues to evolve. And it's multi-partied involvement. It's a conversation between two loved ones. This happens in my life a lot. There are conversations that are ongoing that I have with my wife, Stacy. There are ongoing conversations that I have with my children. There are ongoing conversations that I have with many of you. And these ongoing conversations are important to the health of our relationship it's important to the development of our relationship, to the establishing uh, foundation for our relationship. So when Jesus says, keep on, what he's saying then in the original idea, in the original context is, that let this be a continuation. Keep going. Keep listening. Keep, keep expressing. Keep talking. So he's saying, keep on asking. And asking is the first of what we're going to see are three, what we know as active imperatives. Active imperatives, in the original language, Greek, there's a mood, there's a person, and there's a meaning. Active imperative means that it's a continuation, that it's still going on now. It's not future tense, it's not past tense, but that it's present and it will continue to take place. Imperative suggests then that it's incredibly important that we do it. Why I'm choosing to put a little bit of emphasis on the original language here with ask, seek, and knock as active imperatives is because it helps us to understand that prayer requires some responsibility on our ends. It's not passive. Prayer doesn't just happen. Prayer doesn't just evolve. Prayer is something that we practice. So when you understand the original language as this being an active imperative, we understand then that we have an active role to play in this, that we have a responsibility when it comes to prayer. It's not a one-sided conversation. So Jesus says, when you pray, keep on asking. And I'm going to explain this word ask in a moment. I'm going to explain the word seek in a moment. And I'm going to explain the word knock in a moment. Because they will define clearly for us the three characteristics of our prayer life. But Jesus says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. This is a practice, I'm sorry, this is a promise predicated on a practice. This is God's promise to us as his children. He doesn't say if, or it might, or it could be, it says, for everyone, and I want to talk about that word everyone here in just a moment. I'm going to come back to that. Um, uh, Heath, remind me to come back to that in case I keep going. For everyone who asks, receives. That's a promise predicated on a practice. Everyone who seeks, finds. That's a promise predicated on a practice. And to everyone who knocks, there's a promise predicated on a practice. The door will be open. Now let's talk about everyone here. Remember moments ago I set the stage for us to understand who Jesus' audience was? This would have been a rarity. There are so many of us in religion that we want to, we want to, we want to, and intended or not, we want to differentiate between the haves and the have-nots. The religious elite and the, the religious, uh, the, 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 the different ideas, different doctrines, different theologies, different approaches and practices. This would have been very prevalent in their culture. 
There would have been the Jews who were God's elect, God's chosen, God's people. When God spoke into Abraham and said, I will be your God. You will be my people. We will live in community together. I will walk among you. People who were standing there would have identified the Jews as the religious elite, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a part of the Sanhedrin, the, the scribes, the Essenes, those who were all together, had it all together religiously, and they, they would have been quick to identify that, okay, this must be for them. And for everybody else, there was a, a, a whole different system, a whole different ideology that came with faith and understanding. And for all of them, there was a, a, a book of rules and regulations on how you could encounter God or who God was reaching out to. But remember, prior to this in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches about prayer and fasting, he introduces a term that they hear for the first time. The Jews had only ever in the Hebrew language identified God as Yahweh or El Shaddai or Elohim. They would identify characteristics of God, quality traits of God, but never by his name. For the first time, Jesus in Matthew 6 says, when you pray, you pray, our Abba, our Father. And that word in the Greek, the language literally means our Papa God, our Daddy. And it denotes a relationship, an intimate relationship between a father and a child. So now all of his hearers, this is one sermon. It's not broken up into some sections where they come back the following week to get the rest of it. This is one long conversation, one long monologue, one long sermon that Jesus gives. So previous to this, they have identified God as Father, and it's changed the way they see God. It's changed the way they view God. It's changed how they see themselves in light of God. So when Jesus then says, he's talking about everyone here, they're hearing this differently. That word everyone in the original Greek language literally translates to the entire or the whole. This is where we get the Bible when it says that God wishes that none would perish, but that all or everyone would come to know him. So they're listening a little more intently, a little more intentionally. They're receiving a little differently than they would have prior to this moment. When Jesus says that everyone who asks receives they're sitting there. Can you just feel that? Can you feel the, the, can you feel the weight of the, these words? Wait a minute. We've had to go through a laws and rituals and regulations to be good enough. We've had to go to the high priest and the Levites to ask them to intercede on our behalf because we couldn't come into a relationship with God. It was all about rules and regulation. And now you're telling me that God desires me? He desires a relationship with me? A conversation with me? He's laid it all out there for me? And this is for everyone? This is for everyone. And this is brilliant because this should give you and I hope this morning. Right where we're at. That God desires every one of us. That everyone would come to the saving grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That every one of us would encounter Jesus and our lives would change forever. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is going to turn their attentions to two, to two visuals. And again, he's talking to an eclectic group of people, but everybody, regardless of where you're from, age, race, socioeconomic background, demographic, each one of us can identify with a parent. And he said, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. Then he draws a distinctive, a parallel to God. So now they're all thinking in, in terms of parents and children and the, the obvious love that a parent would have for a child. Stacy yesterday was out for a little while in the afternoon and my little girls came to me asking for lunch and I didn't go outside and grab some, uh, you know, some dirty snow, bring it in on a plate and say, well, here you go. They had asked for a sandwich. I didn't give them some dirty snow, bait and switch. I went and grabbed some bread, some all-natural peanut butter, some honey, threw some bananas on there, tore off the, the uh, what do you call it, the crust on the outside, and I handed it to them and said, here you go. I met their basic necessities, their basic needs, because I cared for them. And then he says in verse 11, so if you sinful people, when he's saying in, in our utter brokenness, if even us in our, in our sin, we know how to give good gifts to our children, and we're limited in what we can give. Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his expanse, 
in his love, in his generosity, give good gifts to those who ask him. So there are two things that we have to address. First of all, if, if this prayer isn't about God being a genie in a bottle and giving us what we want, what is it? How do we have to read this prayer? For two and a half chapters, God sets the stage for every follower of Jesus Christ. Their attitudes, their actions, their characteristics. And when you look at it, you realize how far from those you really are. Jesus and his wisdom, Jesus and his care, he knows that. So this prayer, this prayer is about aligning our desires with the will of God. And when you come into a relationship with God and you learn to love God with every fiber of your being, it becomes your desire then to please God. And you please God by understanding his will. So what Jesus is saying then is if we're helpless and we can't do this on our own and we're hopeless, in other words, all is lost unless the Holy Spirit shows up and, 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 and reaches us at the core of who we are and leads us into this right relationship and understanding with, with Jesus to be a fully devoted follower, what resource do we have? The resource that we have is prayer. The resource that we have is to ask God. So when it says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened to them. What Jesus is saying is that when your heart is the heart of God, when your will is the will of God, when your ways are the way of God, when your desire are the characteristics that God has already laid out for us, clearly, plainly for all to see, he is rich and generous and excited to give to you. If we've been praying at nauseum for things that are self-motivated, if you read James at all, you'll, you'll, you'll notice from James 1 to James 5 that James talks about our motivation, our attitudes over and over and over and over again. In James 4, verses 2, 3, and 4, he even talks about why we don't uh, experience answered prayers. Because it's about our motivations, it's about our directions, it's about our desires. But what Jesus is saying here is that when you become more and more like Christ, when your focus and emphasis becomes more and more the things of God and living out the characteristics, the qualities, the attributes, and the actions that God is calling us to, then when we pray, God will align us all the more with him, and then he will answer. The three characteristics of prayer that I want to talk about that I would love for you to write down are this, ask. Prayer is about a pursuit with God. Prayer is about pursuing God. I didn't show up one day to see Stacy at a distance and walk up and say something charming like, you're gonna be my wife, let's go. That's not how that worked. I had to pursue a relationship with Stacy. And it began with an ask. And it wasn't an ask by way of junior high writing a, a love note, an invitation to be my girlfriend that I give to a friend of a friend of a friend that has three options. Yes, really big box. No, really, really small box. Maybe in the event that you're undecided. Ask is a deliberate and an intentional approach to establishing a relationship. This continues today. We continue to ask those that we love so that we gain knowledge and so that we gain understanding and so that we gain quality of relationship. It's about a pursuit. We ask because we want to pursue and hear we ask God a few different things. We ask God what his will is. We ask God what his ways are. We ask God to align our desires with his will, our best laid plans with his purpose. We ask God to speak to us. We ask God to commune with us. We ask God to encounter us. And then we get to, we get to meditate on, on God. We get to study his word. We get to listen, be silent before him. We get to simplify our lives so that we don't become so cluttered that we can't experience the fullness of what God has for us because of the things of this world. We get to ask and we get to just sit before the presence of our heavenly father and experience a relationship like never before. The second thing that prayer is intended to be is in the word seek, and that word seek is literally all about priorities. 
It's about aligning our desires with God's priorities. The word seek literally means to search as though you were looking for a treasure. To search as though you were looking for a treasure. If any of you knew for a moment that, that there was a treasure that was hidden, but you had a map to get there, some of us do in the way of lottery tickets or Powerball tickets. We know that there's some sort of a, a treasure waiting, and so our search, our expedition is that we'll spend money buying these tickets in hopes that we'll find it. I want us to understand that this is an intentional and a deliberate searching uh, out the priorities of God to say, God, what are your priorities? What troubles your heart? What breaks your heart? What, 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 what is your heart drawn to? What do you desire? What causes you joy? Because the things that break your heart, Lord, they've got to break my heart. The things that bring you joy, Lord, let them bring joy to my life. What your will is, may it be the way that I live my life, and I'm going to stop at nothing as I intentionally search out these priorities in my life, and that can only happen through prayer. Through asking God. The third the third characteristic of this kind of prayer life is in the word knock. And knock is about being persistent. Jesus uses this reference multiple times in Revelation 3.20. It says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open up and let me in, I will be with you. He'll redeem us unto himself. Knocking is about persistence. It's about a continual, intentional practice of relationship. Yesterday, I was working on finishing my sermon. We've got all 12 weeks laid out. Next week, we're going to be focusing on meditation, what that looks like. But as I was preparing, I had been out of, out of town for three and a half days this week. I took uh, some of our team members, and we flew into Denver, Colorado, went to Wyoming, and we spent two, two days with another church there collaborating and sharing ideas and mutually encouraging one another. And it was just a beautiful time away. But what happened is when I came back, my, my, my schedule had been interrupted. And what I, what I normally would do had been, had been uh, broken up. And so I had to spend a large part uh, of my day yesterday studying. And because Stacy was gone, I worked from home multiple times. Multiple times my little girls would come in and they would interrupt me in the middle of my study. You know what I never did was I never chastised them and I never got after them for, for wanting to be near me. I, I, I let them interrupt. They would be persistent about wanting to spend time with me. And they just, they wanted, to, they wanted tickle time. That's what they wanted. They wanted to come near and they just wanted me to stop what I was doing so I could just chase them around the house and tickle their little bellies or tickle their little necks. They wanted to, to play hide and go seek with me. They wanted to, the Brianne, my two-year-old, she just often wanted to just sit on my lap, lay her head on my chest even as I worked. If you looked at my sermon notes in my office this morning, you would see her little chicken scratches. She got a hold of my colored pencils, and while I was writing over here, she was coloring over here on my sermon notes. This is, this is an example of being persistent, of continuing to approach Papa God for that relationship. It's not a one and done. It's not a one-off. We don't somehow come before the Lord and just get fire insurance. Receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior so that we don't have to worry about the, the, the ramifications of hell. That's not what it's about. It's about a relationship, a loving relationship between Papa God and us as chosen children. A relationship that desires to be with God and that requires persistence. Being persistent in our, in our approach, being persistent in our faith. So prayer then, what Jesus says, when you look at the language and the way it's all set up and when you look at the, the syntax of the, the sentence structure and everything, what Jesus is saying is, look, keep on, be continuous, be intentional uh, about, your, uh, about your pursuit, be intentional about your priorities, be intentional about your persistence because it matters and it changes everything. It changes our hearts. It changes our lives. It changes our perspective. And I wonder, church, I just wonder what would be uh, different in our faith and in our lives if we spent a fraction of the amount of time that we do on our mobile devices, on our cell phones, on our computers, on social media, on trying to communicate with the world at large whatever it is we want to communicate in the presence of God. Communicating with God through prayer. Actively listening to God. Studying God's word and asking God to align our desires with his will, to align our best laid plans with his purpose. What would happen if we spent a fraction of the time that we do on our mobile phones 
listening to God, to that small, still voice. You know, I often have read and heard Christians say, I don't, God doesn't speak to me like he used to, or God doesn't speak to me like he speaks to some others. And here's, here's what I always wrestle with in my own heart, my own head. The Bible is clear that God doesn't change. That he is the same yesterday as he is today and he forever will be. That God draws close to us, near to the brokenhearted. The Bible says that if we lift his name up in James, he will draw all people unto himself. So if God hasn't gone anywhere, then who's moved? If we don't hear God anymore, then who stopped listening? If we don't experience answered prayers... So often people will pray these prayers and when they don't come true, they'll say, well, it must not have been God's will. My question was, your will, the will of God? Because if you're praying the will of God, your prayers will be answered every time. I'm going to say that again. It's really important that we catch this. And I wrestled with that theologically. I really did. But over and over and over again, as I studied multiple passages of Scripture, and we don't have, I could do a couple months series on prayer. Let me say this again, because you will see, if you were to cut out every prayer that Jesus prayed, and every prayer of the Old Testament, and you were just to paste it on Scripture and read the similarities, the characteristics, the quality traits of prayer. Let me, let me say this again. If God, if you're not experiencing answered prayers, is it because God's not working or he's not listening, or is it because we have not aligned our will, our ways with God's will? The Bible says in Isaiah that God's ways are not our ways, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, so declares the Lord. So in order for them to become similar and like-minded, we've got to ask God. We've got to seek out God. We've got to knock and align our desires with the will of God. Here's the big so what. What it's there for, what we do with it. A growing relationship with God requires an intentional and active life centered on prayer. And notice I wrote the words active and intentional. Because this is where we get the active imperative that we have a responsibility. But also notice that I wrote the word life. The descriptor, the qualifier, life. This is not just a religious practice, but it's a part of our lifestyle. I want to finish by reading two quotations to you from two different authors on the, the topic of prayer, specifically spiritual discipline. The first comes from Dallas Willard and his book, The Spirit of the Discipline. And here's what Dallas Willard writes. Praying with frequency gives us the readiness to pray again as needed from moment to moment. In other words, when we build this as a habit, it becomes something we do moment by moment. The more we pray, the more we think to pray. And as we see the results of prayer, I just talked about that. The results of prayer will take place when we align our desires with God's will. And as we see the results of prayer, the responses of our Father to our requests our confidence in God's power spills over into the other areas of our life. How beautiful is that? It's the idea of a, of a river, water flowing from a river and it being so full that it overflows the side of the banks and it spills out into other areas of our lives. That is the beauty of prayer. That is the significance and the power of prayer. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of the Discipline, Celebration of the Discipline, writes, To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. Prayer is the central avenue that God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. But the closer that we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more that we desire to be conformed to Christ. Prayer, prayer is about conforming to the likeness of Christ. We can have all the head knowledge in the world. We can study all that we want. But prayer, prayer is the catalyst for communication with God. It's how we hear from God through praying his scriptures, through praying the prayers that were written before us. There's all kinds of practice to prayer, each one of them beautiful in their own right, helpful, useful. But prayer is about actively and intentionally aligning ourselves with God.
becoming less self-centered and myopic in the things of this world and more Christ-centered or entirely Christ-centered and Christ-focused. I would challenge you in your relationship with God to rethink your perspective on prayer and to begin to read passages of prayer. Read the prayers of the psalmist, the psalmist, those who would write prayers to God, good, bad, and indifferent, and listen to the relational requests. These are prayers that you only pray to someone you know intimately. And then I would challenge you to do three things. Ask God. In other words, pursue him. Seek God. In other words, intentionally go after his priorities and continue to knock. In other words, be persistent in your pursuit of God's priorities and see and experience and know what a stronger faith, a stronger relationship with God can look like. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. And I pray that your kingdom would come and I pray that your will would be done right now here on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray for the provisions that we'll need in this moment today. Father, I pray that you forgive us for the ways that we've sinned against you and sinned against others. And I pray that you forgive us and I pray that we would forgive others. God, your word is clear in James that you don't lead us into temptation that we can flee from evil that we can resist the devil and that we can flee from evil. And so I pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. And that as we intentionally pray, as we intentionally ask, as we intentionally seek, and as we intentionally knock, that yours would be the kingdom, that yours would be the power, that yours would be the glory forever and ever. Amen.